The Growing Influence of Non-Religious Americans, this week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Fewer Americans are identifying as Christians, and more have no religious affiliation. That's both an outcome of our religiously divided politics and a potential driver of change. Will secular Americans transform politics the way that evangelicals did? Is there anything holding together these Americans who've dropped out of organized religion? This week, I talked to Ryan Burge of Eastern Illinois University about his new Fortress Press book, The Nuns. He tracks the decline in mainline Protestants and the rise of Americans with no particular religious identity. He says they're part of a broader anti-institutional trend in American life, with only atheists and agnostics sticking out as the political subset of the nuns. I also talked to John C. Green of the University of Akron about his new Cambridge book with David Campbell and Jeffrey Lehman, Secular Surge. They find a rise in avowed secularists who are motivated by politics and changing the face of the Democratic Party. But secularists certainly don't represent everyone who lacks a tie to organized religion. Burge starts with the broadest trend, the big rise in people without religious affiliation. But that category mixes up a lot of people. Well, the first is that the nuns have just exploded. I think that's something that we, I don't think we fully understand all the implications of that, but in the 1970s, the nuns were probably about one in 20 Americans were a nun. And today it's likely around 30% or even higher, depending on how you do a survey and how you ask the questions. There's actually evidence that Gen Z and millennials, it's closer to 40% are nuns. So just an unbelievable rapid rise. And it's touched every segment of the American population. It's not just a thing amongst the educated or amongst white people or even amongst liberals. Although, you know, the nuns do tend to be more liberal. Everyone has become more secular over the last 20 or 30 years. The other thing is that all nuns are not created equal. You know, for a long time, social science kind of saw them as this monolithic block where we just call them the nuns, the people of no faith. But if you dig into the data and you separate it by atheists, agnostics, and the third group called nothing in particular, you see that these groups are vastly different, especially the nothing in particular group from the atheists. You know, for instance, atheists are one of the most educated groups in America today. About 47% of atheists have a four-year college degree. It's only 20% of nothing in particular. Nothing in particular are the least educated religious group in America today. So, you know, lumping them together, like from a methodological perspective, is actually kind of really bad because you're lumping together two groups that, that share the same ideas about faith, but don't share much else. So I, I hope from, from a social science side that we all really start thinking about how we sub, if we're going to subdivide Protestants into three different categories, we should subdivide the nuns into at least two categories, atheists, agnostics, and then everybody else. Green, Campbell, and Lehman focus on secularists. The Secular Surge is a book about contemporary politics of secular citizens in the United States. And in the book, my co-authors and I show that there are important political differences among secular citizens. Some people have an explicit secular worldview, which is in many ways an alternative to religion. We call those people secularists in the book. Then there's another group of people who are simply not involved in religion, but don't share a secular worldview, and we call them non-religionists. And what we find is that those two groups are quite distinct on many political attitudes and activities. My colleagues and co-authors, David Campbell and Jeff Lehman, and I have worked for a long time together on religion and politics in the United States. And one of the things that had always interested us where secular people, people who are not involved in organized religion, many in fact who see themselves as in some sense 
uh, having an alternative worldview uh, to at least the most common religion. And we got all different kinds of work together. And so when we decided to look at the secular population, we thought we'd approach it from a variety of different angles. Uh, so the book uses a wide variety of methods. We have some original surveys that we conducted. We use some well-established surveys uh, from public sources. We did survey experiments. We did interviews. <laughs> we did all different kinds of, of analyses. And I think what it gives us is um, a, a view of secular citizens from a, a number of different angles through a number of different lenses. And what it suggests to us is really two things. One is that the secular surge, the recent increase in uh, non-religiosity in the United States is not a passing fad. It's something that we think will be with us going into the future. But also, it's fairly complex, and all secular people are not alike. They're pointing to similar trends. Burge says how people are defined depends on the survey question. The first religion questions that we have that are sort of valid go back to 1972, asked by the General Social Survey. And that question said, what's your present religion of any? And it gave people basically four or five options, things like Protestant, Catholic, something else. And then it said none. And on the GSS, there isn't a follow-up question after that. So if you say none, you're a nun, and you could be an atheist, or you could be a nothing in particular, or you could be just a secular or a humanist, and you would all be sort of lumped under that nun category. Pew came along and about 15 years ago said, let's ask more options amongst the broad religion questions. So now there's about 11 or 12 options, depending on the survey. And for the nuns now, there are three options. There's atheists, there's agnostic, and then there's an option that's actually called nothing in particular, which I kind of see in my mind as the shrug question, right? Like, I don't know, I'm not an atheist, but I'm not a Christian either. So I'll just shrug and check the nothing in particular box. The other innovation that's really happened that's really important when it comes to religious, uh, doing religious measurement on surveys is moving from a uh, face-to-face format to an online format. The GSS has always been face-to-face. The CES, or CCES as it's sometimes called, is done online. And we know, and Pew has backed this up by doing you know, a split survey, half online, half in person. They found that when you ask religion questions in a face-to-face format, you get a smaller number of people who say they have no religious affiliation than if you ask the same questions on an online survey. So when we look at online surveys, we're actually seeing a, a, a many more nuns than we ever saw in the GSS for two reasons. One, because the GSS only gives them one option, no faith, while the CCS gives them three options. The other is because the GSS has always been done face-to-face, which drives up social desirability bias, while the the CES does it online. And we think we're actually getting closer to what's really going on with American religion when we ask these questions in an online format. The big pattern is the decline in white mainline Protestants that allowed the nuns to gain. There's evangelicals, which I think everyone sort of knows what an evangelical is. You're, you know, your Southern Baptist, your conservative theological folks, Pentecostals fall in that category as well, and a lot of non-denominational Christians are um, in the evangelical camp. Then there's black Protestants. These people who are part of historically black churches. And we subdivide them really because of political reasons. While theologically, they're very similar to evangelicals. Politically, they're (laughs) the polar opposite of evangelicals. 90% of them vote for Democrats. So they're completely different politically than evangelicals. The last category which is called mainline Protestants. And that's probably a term that a lot of people haven't heard before. Mainline Protestants are sort of your more moderate flavor of Protestant Christianity. These are people like United Methodists, uh, Episcopalians, United Church of Christ. 
And in the 1970s, they were the largest religious group in America. In 1975, over 30% of all Americans identified as mainline Protestant. For every three mainline Protestants, there are only two evangelicals. So mainline Protestants really dominated American political discourse all through World War I, World War II, all the way up into the 70s. And then they sort of just started declining in an incredibly rapid way. And now they're about 10% of the American population. And they're, they're, they're projected to be 5% probably in the next 10 or 15 years because the average mainline Protestant today is about 60 years old. It's basically a group of old white people who are aging rapidly. There's not a lot of young kids in those churches. And so really what we see in American Protestant Christianity is black Protestants are holding pretty steady. Evangelicals are doing relatively well, and then mainline Protestants are collapsing, going from 30% to 10%. At the same time, the nuns, like we talked about, have gone from 5% to probably 25 or 30%. And demography, religious demography, is a zero-sum game. So if one group gets bigger, another group has to get smaller. And it's pretty easy to say the nuns rising and the mainline tradition falling kind of coincide with one another. Obviously, the story is a little bit more complicated than that because people are moving around the religious landscape all the time. But it does seem like that a lot of people who are raised mainline Protestant, let's say 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, are no longer mainline Protestant. They are they have no religious affiliation. Very few of the mainline Protestants became Catholics or evangelicals or, or any other tradition. The reality is that the mainline Protestants decline has led to at least one of the reasons why the nuns have grown so rapidly. And despite differences across surveys, there's little evidence mainline Christians are increasing. I see absolutely no evidence that the nuns are any smaller today than they were two, four, or six years ago. In fact, I see the opposite. Right now, they're according to the CES, they're 34% of the population, which is what they were in 2019 and 2020, and they had grown from 31.5% in 2018. So I continue to see those lines going up and up and up. The thing about measuring religion is it's incredibly hard and no one does it exactly the same way, which makes comparing, you know, it's almost like apples and oranges. For instance, PRI calls a mainline Protestant something different. They call a, a mainline Protestant someone who says they're Protestant, but then says they're not evangelical when they're asked to self-identify as evangelical. So really, they're mainline Protestants, what I would call a non-evangelical Protestant, not necessarily a mainline Protestant. Another reason why I'm skeptical the idea that mainline Protestants are increasing is if you look at the seven largest mainline traditions, they're called the seven sisters of the mainline. In every case, they're smaller than they were 10 years ago. And in some cases, dramatically smaller than they were 10 years. We're talking about some denominations are 40% smaller today than they were 10 or 12 years ago. In some cases, it's 25% smaller. I mean, there is just no evidence on the membership role side that any of these denominations have seen any increases over the last 10 or 12 years. So I'm wondering if it's just an, an artifact of the way they conducted the survey or the way they asked the question or the way they operationalized mainline Protestant. But in everything I see, uh, and the GSS, by the way, has not come out for 2020 yet. It's coming out later in the summer. But the CES came out already, and I don't see any evidence in the CES of those trend lines reversing of the nuns going up and mainline Protestants going down. So when the GSS comes out, I'll have two different data sources, but I just don't see any evidence of the nuns declining or abating it in any way. They just continue to rise. Church attendance declines are even larger than non-affiliation, but non-belief is still rare. In the, relig in the religion and politics space, we talk about the three Bs, behavior, belief, and belonging. The one we talk about, we talked about here a lot is belonging, which is saying you have no religious affiliation. You identify or affiliate with that tradition of having no religious affiliation. 
the other one, the other two are behavior. Behavior in this context is almost always measured as church attendance or religious service attendance, because that's one that surveys almost always have as part of their battery. So we can, we can do it in more surveys and it's easier to do. What we know is that religious behavior is actually a leading indicator of religious belonging going away. For instance, 40% of Americans today say they never go to church which is the highest it's ever been. So if you look at the nuns through that lens, it's actually way higher than 25 or 30%. It's closer to 40%. And amongst the youngest generations, it's about 50% of people say they seldom or never attend church. But so if you're a nun, you love hearing that statistic because it makes your group look like it's bigger and it's growing and it's a huge part of American population. But if you look at belief, and the GSS has been asking a religious belief question since 1988. They ask you, what do you believe about God? And the answers are, I believe in God without a doubt on one end. And the other answer, the other response option is, I don't believe in God at all. The share of Americans who express an atheist or agnostic belief in God today is only about 10%. Um, so 90% of Americans still believe in God at some level. 40% never go to church and about 25 or 30% say they have no religious affiliation. So the answer when people ask me how many nuns there are, I, I almost want to say, well, what's your prism, right? Like what's the, what's the lens that you want to look at the world through? And if you lay all three of those on top of each other, only about 6% of Americans don't believe, don't belong, and don't behave. So in that context, the nuns are only about 6% of the population, not 40% or 25 or 30% or 10%. So it's just all in what prism you want to use to think about the nuns because religion is incredibly diverse. It's not just one thing or another and no two people practice religion in the exact same way. So to put a category on that is difficult and overly reductive. I'll be the first to admit that, but at some level we have to generalize as social scientists or we can't do our work. So when we talk about the nuns, 10% don't believe, about 25 to 30% don't belong, and about 40% don't behave. So the answer is somewhere between those three numbers. Atheists stand out more than other types of the non-religious. Atheists especially are incredibly white and incredibly male. 60% of atheists in the, in the data are men, 40% are women. If you look at nothing in particular, it's 50-50, which is kind of what you would expect to see in a, in a, in a random sample. So atheists are... In your head, if you think of an atheist, I think a lot of people think of like a philosophy professor, like an old white guy philosophy professor. That's kind of true. But the other thing is there's a lot of young atheists at the same time. The average age of an atheist today in America is about 43 years old, which is about 10 or 12 years younger than a white evangelical. So they're, they're absolutely a lot younger. But the average atheist today is the same age as the average American. Muslims, the average Muslim in America is 34 years old. If you look at adults, so the average adult Muslim is 34 years old. Average atheist is 43 years old. The thing about atheists is they're, they're, they're upper middle class. They're upwardly mobile. But, and this is really, really important. We think about what the nuns look like. 6% of Americans are atheists. 6% of Americans are agnostic. And somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 or 22% of Americans are nothing in particular. Right. So if we put five nuns in a room, one's an atheist, one's an agnostic, and three are nothing in particular. So when people talk about the nuns, they're almost always thinking about atheists and agnostics. But in reality, that's not what most nuns look like. Here's something else about the atheists that are super interesting that I think we need to think more about. Atheists are incredibly politically active. 
They're the most politically active religious group in America today. If you put them in a model and control for things like education, income, race, gender, all those things we talked about, they're still much more politically active than white evangelicals are. They're much more likely to give to a candidate. They're much more likely to attend a rally or a protest or go to a local political meeting. Atheists are incredibly politically engaged. The other side of the coin is nothing in particular who are one of the least politically engaged religious groups in America today. So, you know, some people ask me, have atheists make, made politics their religion? I, I wouldn't go that far, but I would definitely say that politics is an animating force in the life of atheists and agnostics when it's not so animating for really any other religious group. So just dra dramatically different atheists are than other religious groups. Green, Campbell, and Lehman separate what they call secularists from others without religion. Non-religionists are people who are defined by what they're not. These are people that tell us that they're not involved in organized religion. In many cases, don't affiliate with any kind of religious community. But we identified another group of people we call the secularists, which are people who are defined by what they are. These are people who partake of secular beliefs, and we developed a set of new, we think, innovative ways to capture secular beliefs, uh, but also tend to take those beliefs very seriously in the way that many religious people take their religious beliefs seriously, and also tend to identify with uh, communities that hold those beliefs. Oftentimes, they'll describe themselves as atheists or agnostics or humanists or even secularists. There's a lot of the most important effects come from secularism. And for the people who are both secular and, and but also not involved in organized religion, the people we call the secularists, we think make up a little less than 25% of the adult population. Uh, Non-religionists, people who don't partake of a secular worldview but are not involved in organized religion, make up a little less than a fifth. But there's a lot of nuance and complexity we found a fascinating group of people we call the religious secularists. <laughs> and these are people that are both religious and partake of a secular worldview. A really fascinating group makes about, up about a sixth of the adult population. If you add that all up, what's left is about 40% of the population, which are religionists of one kind or another. Green says there are a lot of ways to identify these groups. Uh, secular people are identified as they're called nuns. That's N-O-N-E-S, not, not religious nuns as in the Catholic Church, but the people who, when asked a simple religious affiliated question, are you a Protestant, Catholic, Jew, other nun, say none. And within that group, there are really quite a diverse group of people. In some surveys, instead of asking none, the terminology is nothing in particular. And, and sometimes in those questions, people are asked if they identify as an atheist or an agnostic or any number of other terms. But terminology of spiritual, not religious, often comes up in these types of uh, discussions. Also, individuals will often volunteer for certain terms. Now, one of the most common terms volunteered is the term humanist. In fact, there are a group of people who are quite secular who identify themselves as, as humanists. So in this large group of people that don't identify with uh, religious communities, there are, there's a lot of diversity. Um, but within, of course, we know that within religious communities, there's a lot of diversity, so maybe this 
shouldn't surprise us. But the seculars, the people who partake of a, a distinctive secular worldview, are fairly distinct. Uh, they tend to be well-educated. Uh, they are overwhelmingly white. Uh, they tend to be affluent. But interestingly enough, they're um, not particularly distinctive by age. Uh, some of them are older people. Some of them are younger people. So there doesn't seem to be an, an age dynamic there. On the other hand, if we look at non-religionists, those people who are merely not religious, uh, defined by what they're not, those people tend to be markedly less educated. Uh, they tend to be older. Um, many of them are uh, not affluent. And many of them are not engaged in a whole variety of things, not just in, not involved in religion, but they're not involved in politics, they're not involved in civic organizations. So they're really quite distinct. And I think these distinctions help explain some of the interesting findings that survey researchers have come up with. If you just look at the nuns, oftentimes they appear to be people who are just disengaged from society. Um, sort of the, like the people that Robin Putnam wrote about in Bowling Alone. But if you can distinguish the secularists from the non-religionists, you see quite an important distinction. And in terms of political attitudes, secularists are strongly progressive, strongly identified with the Democratic Party. And in an interesting exception from a lack of civic engagement that we see among secular people, secularists are very active in politics, which of course makes them very important in elections and other types of activities. Whereas the non-religionists are not very involved in politics at all. There's been a broad decline in religiosity, but not all of these trends go together. We can say that over the last two or three decades, there has been a steady decline in religiosity in the United States. But it's occurred in different ways, and the different measures of religion do not necessarily overlap completely. So, for instance, when we think of the nuns, we're thinking about people who don't identify or affiliate with a religious community. Um, some of the people, however, who affiliate with a religious community are not particular in terms of their regular attendance. They're not very active. Uh, on the other hand, there are people who never darken the door of a church or a synagogue or a mosque, but nonetheless have very strong religious beliefs. So we see a great deal of diversity. We're not seeing a uniform decline in religiosity, but overall, of the decline is clearly evident. And into that space, if you will, have emerged a growing and large secularist population. People who approach many of the same issues that religious people do, but from a distinctive secular perspective. Green says religion and politics both cause each other. Well, the relationship between religion and politics is reciprocal. It is certainly the case that for many people in particular contexts, their religion leads them to a particular kind of politics. But it's also the case, particularly over a little bit longer term, that people's politics can lead them to a particular kind of religion and maybe out of religion completely. And that's one of the fascinating things about studying the religio-secular world and politics is that it's very dynamic. And we have change on both fronts. Simultaneously, we have people that are adjusting their religion to meet their politics, but there are people who are adjusting their politics to match their religion. 
and part of the non-religious rise is due to backlash to the religious right. Um, the rise of the religious right was in many ways a reaction to changes in American society, some of them having to do with gender, some of them having to do with race. But what we find that is in recent times, there's been a backlash in the opposite direction, that a fair number of people who were frankly marginally connected to a religious community have left religion. They, they say they no longer have a religious affiliation as a backlash to the religious right. And it's almost as if these people were saying, I'm not so sure about religion, but whatever it is, it's a definitely not the religious right. And we did some survey experiments which were fascinating. We measured people's religiosity or lack of religiosity at two different time points and in between exposed them to a set of stories about candidates, which among other things have raised support or allegiance with the religious right. And we saw some very clear effects of people who were marginally religious deciding that they weren't religious anymore. And this experiment showed that there can be a backlash with regard to affiliation, that people can move from identifying with a religion to not identifying with it at all. That's how, where a lot of the nuns apparently came from. What's interesting though, is as far as we can tell in our experiment, that, did not, that backlash did not necessarily turn people from nuns into secularists. There seemed to be an, an additional step required there. And part of the interesting politics of secularism these days is to what extent can secularist activists get the non-religious to adopt their worldview and adopt their political positions? Burge agrees politics can be a cause of religious change. For a long time in the religion and politics literature, even 30 or 40 years ago, we always assumed that religion was the first cause and politics is downstream from that. So you look at politics through a religious worldview. Uh, if you grow up in a Christian church, you say a Christian worldview or see the world like Jesus would or something like that. And in the last 10 years or so, we've really started to challenge that assumption. And now, especially books like Michelle Margolis from The Politics of the Pews makes this really interesting argument that politics now is the first lens and everything lies downstream of politics. So now we're viewing religion in a political lens as opposed to the opposite. So what we're seeing, and, and, and Paul Jupe and, and a couple others published a piece in APSR a couple years ago where they found that people are leaving churches now in increasing numbers for political reasons. That why would you go to a church where you are having to listen to a pastor say things from the pulpit that you just disagree with over and over again? You don't have to be there. So what you're going to do is you're going to leave and either become maybe like a mainline Protestant if you're a Democrat or become a nun because you just don't want to be subjected to that cognitive dissonance all the time. But what's interesting, an interesting caveat that I found in my research is when we ask people to self-identify as evangelical, we ask everybody that question. Whether you say you're a Muslim or a Jew or a Protestant or a Catholic, we ask you the question, you know, do you, are you a, a, an evangelical, a born again or an evangelical Christian or not? The share of Americans who say yes to that question, who are Catholics, who are Muslims, who are Jews, has gone up significantly over the last 10 years. And if you try to figure out, for a long time, I thought it was just survey error. People don't know what that term means. They're just checking the wrong box because they're in a hurry. But if you actually model that stuff and look at it over a long period of time, what you see is that more and more Americans are seeing the term evangelical as a political term and not a religious term, right? So we're seeing this melding of politics and religion. For instance, half of Republican Muslims who go 
attend services once a week or more identify as evangelical. Because I think in their minds, what they see is to be religious and to be conservative is to be an evangelical. So what's made it difficult to understand the causal arrows is they sort of smush together and politics and religion have sort of melded together where to be a, a white Christian in America especially is to be a Republican and to be a nun is to be a Democrat. So I think a lot of Americans are having a hard time understanding evangelicalism as a religious or theological term. They're understanding it as a cultural or political term. And so that makes it even harder for us to understand on surveys how are people and why are people answering the questions the way they do now the nuns are creating a big divide in the Democratic Party, but also a long-time problem for the right. Half of white liberals today identify as having no religious affiliation. Half. So we've got to think, like, this is a growing coalition amongst the Democratic Party that they have to continue to find ways to, I don't want to use the word pander, but they have to find ways to continue to keep these people in their tent. I think largely what's happened is the Democrats have gotten the nuns by default up until this point. That's largely because the Republican Party is so intertwined with white Christianity, especially white evangelical Christianity. 75% of Republicans today are white Christians. It's only 38% of Democrats, right? So the Democratic Party has to find a way, and I think this is actually really difficult. They have to find a way to keep all these different groups happy at the same time. So for instance, they got to keep black Protestants happy. But they also have to keep white atheists happy who could not be more different on things like the Equality Act, which is a bill that's being debated in Congress and being kind of kicked around right now that would basically say that churches could not fire people because of their sexual orientation or their gender identity. Black Protestants do not like that bill. They want churches to have religious autonomy and be able to hire and fire whoever they want based on theological concerns. White atheists could give a rip about that. They want you know no one to be discriminated against in any institution in America. Those things are at odds with each other. So how do the Democratic Party keep this one coalition happy, the white you know liberal atheists, at the same time keeping, let's say, groups like black Protestants and Hispanic Catholics and Muslims happy at the same time who have a completely different set of concerns over time but the Republicans have a bigger problem, which is you can't bank your future on white Christians forever because they're declining as a share of the population every single year because Christianity is declining and America is becoming more racially diverse. So I think what we're going to see is Republicans are going to try their best to try to, to reach out and bring in some of those, those nuns that are growing so much amongst the younger generation. But how do you do that, but at the same time make the Christian or keep the Christian nationalists happy? So I think both parties have a difficult future in trying to keep their coalition while also trying to reach out to changing uh, the changing American coalition of religious groups. So I, I think that what we're going to see is we're going to see a new group arise in America, which are conservative nuns, conservative, politically conservative nuns, libertarians. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, atheists are have libertarian tendencies because they're high income and high education. I think we're going to try to see the Republican Party find ways to reach out to this group. And I also think the Democrats are going to have to find ways to keep everyone happy at the same time. It's going to be fascinating to see how the parties position themselves in the next 15, 20 years when America's 35% nuns, when it's only you know 25% nuns right now. Green says secularists are connected to the rise of Bernie Sanders in the Democratic Party. The uh, secularists are having a big impact on the politics of both parties. We have strong religious secular differences between Republicans and Democrats, but we also have divisions within the parties based on these same dynamics. So for instance, in 2016, and then again in 2020, before the pandemic hit, uh, Bernie Sanders was mobilizing a large cadre 
of secular activists, which were strengthening and expanding the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Um, in many ways, that helped the Democratic Party. It gave them new resources, new energy, and ways to be different than the Republicans. But there were tensions as well. For instance, many of the secular activists found themselves in conflict with traditional democratic groups, for instance, black Protestants and Hispanic Catholics, who may have come to similar policy positions, but out of deep traditional religious beliefs. And it was really kind of interesting, many people remember that one of the key points of the democratic presidential primaries in 2020 was the South Carolina Democratic primary. Uh, Bernie Sanders was kind of riding high at that point, but Joe Biden got strong endorsements from black leaders, many of them deeply religious, and was able to win the South Carolina primary, really turned the dynamic around. One of the ways that Joe Biden was able to prevail in the general election, obviously a very close and contentious election, is that he was able to hold together the ethnic and racial minorities, which are so important to the Democratic coalition, but also keep the secular activists involved and, and supportive of him. It'll be very interesting going forward how Democrats manage that tension uh, between very religious Democrats of a certain kind and very secular Democrats of another kind. And here's where ideology and race play important uh, roles. We might say subsidiary roles, some people might say maybe the more important effect, but part of this, there's a racial dynamic. Secularists tend to be white, um, other, the minority Democrats are dominated by African-Americans, uh, but also they, uh, all of them tend to be liberal, but they're liberal in different ways and on different issues. So there, there's room for cooperation, but there's also room for a great deal of conflict. But it's hard to organize secularists when they have no organizational base. But there's one important difference between the religious right and those efforts and what we might call a secular left. And that is that one of the advantages that religious people have in politics is that they belong to organizations. Many of them show up at the same place every weekend and talk to each other, you know, whether it's on Friday night or Saturday or on Sunday morning. Secularists, while they have common beliefs and common identifications, as far as we can tell, don't have that kind of organizational commitment. That they don't engage in secularist behaviors the way that religious people engage in religious behaviors. So that poses a real challenge for leaders that want to organize groups and mobilize voters. You know, where do you find secularists? Um, is it at Starbucks? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just a really interesting question. And um, so there's some real challenges, people who would like to organize a secular left that would be a counterpart to the religious right in politics. We don't know yet if American trends are like secularization in Europe. The secular surge has uh, created a lot of interest among theories of, uh, theorists of secularization. There's always been an effort on how do you make Europe and other advanced industrial societies fit with the American case, which at least in terms of religion, seem to be quite different. And it may very well be that uh, we'll have a broader secularization theory that would encompass what happened in Europe in the last century with what's happening in the United States now. But a lot of what's happening in the U.S. is peculiar to the United States. Maybe that's true of most countries. And it's partly because of the long history and strong um, numbers of uh, religious people in the United States. And even 
after the secular surge, the United States remains distinctive compared to other similar countries by its high level of popular religiosity. It's just that now, as opposed to 40 years ago, we have a much larger secular population. And I think this does two things. One is it, it adds a kind of dynamism and a new kind of diversity to the American religious landscape. It also creates potential for intense conflict that wasn't as common in the United States as it might have been, say, in some European countries. But as we point out at the end of our book, we also see some real possibilities for new coalitions, for new forms of cooperation, where different kinds of religious communities might make common cause with the different kinds of secular people. Bird says the U.S. still stands out for high levels of religion, with slow change. America is stubbornly religious, and it has been for the entirety of its existence. America's always been more religious than other countries. If you look at, if you, you know, secularization says that the country becomes more economically prosperous and it has higher levels of education, there's going to be less religious people. And that's been absolutely true in Western Europe. See places like France and Spain and Italy. They're largely secular countries at this point. America is way in the outlier. If you, if you model, you know, things like how important is religion versus GDP. We are way more religious than we should be. Actually, if you look at most models, we should have 0% of Americans say that religion is very important based on how economically prosperous we are. Now, I think what's happened is the wave of secularization that swept over Europe, let's say in the post-World War II period, has slowly drifted across the ocean and is now sort of lapping on the American shores. And we're seeing the first leading wave of secularization crest across America. But it's going to take a long time for that to have an aggregate effect on America because the older generations are still very religious. Only about 15% of the silent generation says they're nuns. It's it's in the low 20s amongst baby boomers, but it's 45% amongst Gen Z. For that really to change America's religious composition overall, you're going to have to see a lot of old people die off and be replaced by a lot of young people. Now, the question that we all have is, is that wave going to continue to rise and rise and rise, or is it going to sort of plateau? I'm a, b- a believer that we're going to see a plateauing of secularization in America, where maybe 45, maybe 50% of Americans at some point say they have no religious affiliation. But evangelicalism is still very strong in America. I think we're going to, even in the future, we're going to have 20% of Americans still say they're evangelical and probably another 15% say they're Catholic. But then we have groups like Mormons and Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus, and you add all those groups together. I think in the future, we see in America where we're half theistic, half religious, and half secular, which is a tremendous change when you think that even 30 years ago, America was 80 or 85% Christian to go to a future where we're, we're half you know, secular. And then even Christians there only make up 35% of the population. It's a huge change, one that we haven't even begun to understand the implications for all manners of society. Burge has an interesting personal story. He's combined his social science with active work as a pastor. I have been uh, in the ministry my entire adult life. Well, since my sophomore year in undergrad, I was a youth pastor for three years, and I pastored a little church in a town called Marion, Illinois, for a year. And I've been at First Baptist Church of Mount Vernon, Illinois, for it'll be 15 years in October. I'm the longest serving pastor in the history of the church. I went to a Christian college, a free Methodist school for undergrad, and I've always sort of been between these two worlds of academia 
and the religious sphere. And I, I wanted to try to meld those in my career and not really segregate those. I think that one informs the other. And I think that my, my congregation is benefited from my social science background because I often talk about things in social science that I've learned and read about, you know, society and culture and, and religiosity and all these things. But I also think it really helps inform my academic work because I'm not just some sort of bland neutral practitioner, you know, bland neutral observer of American religion. I'm a practitioner. So a lot of the questions I have are things that I've seen in my ministry career. Am I, what am I seeing? Is what I'm seeing different than what other people are seeing? Why am I seeing the things that I'm seeing? You know, why is my congregation now 15 people and it was 300 people 50 years ago? So the book actually came out of a tweet where I basically just looked at the GSS and showed the nuns had risen exponentially over the last several years and were the same size as evangelicals and Catholics. And that tweet kind of went viral. And it's interesting because it went viral in both the religious media sphere, but also the general media sphere at the same time. And in doing that, I sort of found that that people are interested in secularization. They're interested in the nuns. Uh, and, and people who are nuns themselves are interested in understanding themselves. Christians are interested in understanding the nuns because they want to try to win them back to faith. And I thought that I sort of stood between these two worlds in a way that most other people don't. And I can speak sort of authoritatively in a social science context about the nuns, what they look like demographically, you know, economically. We can talk about tracking changes over time. But I can also speak to pastors and practitioners and say to them, here's what you need to know about the nuns if you're trying to win them back to faith. That's what the first book's really about, it's trying to do both. And, and reading the reviews on Amazon makes me realize that people get mad at you if you try to do both. They want you to be one or the other. You know, my, the atheists read my book go, I'm really mad at you because you're trying to t tell ministers how to win nuns back. And they get mad at me because I kind of reveal a bias there, I guess they think. But then my pastor friends read the book and go, I wish you would have given us more practical advice on how to win the nuns back. So I love living between these both worlds, but it's also sort of difficult because you're never enough for one and you're never enough for the other. So you kind of feel like you're, you, you don't really fit in either sphere, which is a, is a blessing and a curse at the same time. And he sees change within academia as Christians decline there. The big names in religion and politics from like the 80s, the 90s, even in the 2000s were all people who were taught at Christian universities, places like Wheaton and Calvin, right? Guys like Ted Jelen and Corwin Schmidt and, and Bud Kelstead at Wheaton. Those guys were all evangelicals and they've all sort of died off over time. And now they're being replaced with a whole new crop of people. And by and large, this new crop of people are nuns. Atheist agnostics would be a significant portion of religion and politics scholars today. Lots of them grew up religious, but then left religion somewhere along the way in their teens and 20s. I think they bring a completely different perspective. But I, I do agree that I think that when we talk about diversity in academia, we almost always talk about racial diversity and gender diversity, which are absolutely laudable goals. We need to become less white and more female. I think there's no doubt about that. But I also think when you understand that, you know, a huge chunk of America is still Christians. And the academy is does not reflect America in that way. And I think, you know, I'm not an evangelical myself. I'm a mainline Protestant, but the number of devout academics, religiously devout academics, is is smaller today than it's been at any point in the last 50 years. And I think that, you know, having academics studying religion who are also involved in religion brings a nuance to the discussion that we're that we may not see in the future when it's all one thing, all one note. And the one thing that I try to do is I try to become a neutral referee, a neutral party where I don't want to make one group always look bad and another group always look good. I want to tell people what the data looks like, which is difficult, 
right? I think that some people, it's just easier to make one group look bad, another group look good over and over again. I think we need academics to understand their own blind spots as well. I have a bias. I, you know, I, I'm a Christian. I'm a pastor. I have a bias. Just like atheists and agnostics have a bias when they approach religion and politics research as well, I think the way that we overcome that is by having academics study religion and politics from various backgrounds, various biases, and in all that, the scientific process sort of wins out and the data wins out and the empirics wins out. If we all come at it from the same perspective, I think we're all missing something. And I worry that in the future, we're going to have you know less religious diversity and we're going to miss some things because we're less religiously diverse than we were 20 or 30 years ago. Next up, Burge will be doing more myth-busting about religion and its role in politics. I just shipped my second book that's going to come out in March of 2022. It's called 20 Myths About Religion and Politics in America. It's 20 little chapters. They're about 2,000 words each, a couple graphs, just things I keep hearing people say on social media. And when they talk to me at you know dinner parties and things like that, they'll say things that I know are empirically false, but I just don't have the space to sort of refute them, like say in a tweet or even in a blog post. I wanted to give it a little more heft than that. So 20 things, 10 of them are religion and politics things, and 10 of them are strictly religious things. So things like evangelicals are in decline, like we just talked about. They're actually not really in decline. Um, things like evangelicals did not like Donald Trump. They only voted for him because he was their only option. That's also not true. If you look at the data, evangelicals like Trump even early in the primaries. So just trying to upset what people think about the world, trying to make them think about the world in a different way, that's kind of always been my goal. So that book is is slated to come out in March of 2021. It's going to be pitched more towards the, the blended audience, the popular audience in terms of not strictly academics, right? It's, it's more for a general audience, educated audience who's who are interested in religion and politics and the interplay between both. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center and part of the Democracy Group Network. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, you should check out our previous episodes on How Americans' Politics Changes Their Religion and Are Americans Becoming Tribal. Thanks to Ryan Burge and John C. Green for joining me. Please check out The Nuns and Secular Surge and then listen in next time. Mm-hmm.